It's Friday, December 10th, 2021, and you are listening to Matters of Policy and Politics, a Hoover Institution podcast devoted to governance and the balance of power here in America and around the free world. I am Jonathan Mavrotis, senior writer at the Hoover Institution, and I'm sitting in the chair of Bill Whalen, the Virginia Hobbs Carpenter Distinguished Policy Fellow in Journalism, so that he can answer questions and provide commentary about California policy and politics in which he's well-versed. Bill Whalen, in addition to being a Washington Post columnist, writes weekly for Hoover's California On Your Mind web channel and edits and publishes Eureka, a quarterly forum featuring analysis and commentary from Hoover scholars and California's top thinkers. Whalen is joined today by Leo Hanian, Hoover Institution Senior Fellow and Professor of Economics and Director of the Edinger Family Program in Macroeconomic Research at the University of California, Los Angeles. Ohanian also writes twice per week about the policy environment of the Golden State for California On Your Mind. Good day, gentlemen. Let's talk about the latest developments in policy and politics in the Golden State. Uh, let's first talk about 2021 in retrospect, a year characterized by COVID-19, as well as a recall election inspired by uh, Governor Newsom's pandemic policies. Um, what are some new things you learned this year about the politics uh, of the Golden State, Bill and Lee? Uh, Bill, let's start with you. Um, I learned something that I've known for a long time, that it is really, really, really hard to kick a California governor out of office. Uh, Yes, Gray Davis was recalled in 2003, but that was kind of a harmonic convergence of Davis being remarkably unpopular at the time and Arnold Schwarzenegger coming along. Uh, In this case, in 2021, uh, it's interesting, at the beginning of the year, Gavin Newsom was uh, in a very weak situation politically. His poll numbers were anemic. He was in the low 40s. Uh, which in a state where Democrats outnumber Republicans about two to one in voter registration shouldn't happen, but he was struggling. And then the recall election qualified in the spring and come the summer, uh, he appeared to be on the ropes uh, where the recall was kind of a 50-50 proposition, but then Newsom survived and he survived how? Uh, he did something that Democrats could not do in other states. If you looked at the November results around the country, New Jersey and Virginia in particular, Democrats ran on a, um, you know, basically ran against Donald Trump more than anything else. Well, Newsom ran against Donald Trump 24-7 here in California, and he was rewarded with the same 61.9% voting against the recall uh, as, a, as a 61.9% who voted for his election in 2018. So, um the point of this rather long rambling here is that um, we have not, uh, California has not uh, said goodbye to a first term governor since uh, Colbert Olson in 1942, a Democrat who was kind of an odd duck. He was an atheist. Uh, he took the oath of office in 1939. And the first thing he uh, was questioned by reporters was why he didn't say the words, so help me God, when he took the oath. And he said, because frankly, I don't see God bailing me out if I get into trouble. And that is now not a good thing to do for a politician. But since then, California governors who have been elected uh, have managed to get reelected. Um, Pat Brown, defeated by Ronald Reagan, was going for a third term in 1966. So that's kind of the lesson here with Newsom, it's resiliency. But the second thing is that it's actually good to be, well, if it's not good to be the king, it's good to be the governor. He ends the year on a very strong note, and I want to get Lee's thoughts on this. At this time of the year in Sacramento, a governor is usually looking at uh, a bunch of numbers, uh, a budget. Uh, Early December, mid-December is when you've put together your budget proposal that you unveil in early January. And Gavin Newsom literally has an excess of riches from which to choose. It's $30, $31 billion, depending on who you talk to on the surplus, which means there's going to be a lot of fairy dust that he can sprinkle around Sacramento. So, you know, Lee, I say that as just, I've been, I've worked for governors who have had to deal with economic hardship times where they had to cut budgets, not spend money, far easier to spend than it is to cut. It's far easier to spend than it is to cut. Exactly right. And Bill, of that of that 31 billion, a fairly sizable chunk of that, I believe, I believe based on on law, needs to go back to taxpayers. Um, the way Newsom did that last summer was was to send money back to lower and middle income taxpayers as kind of a one-time rebate. Um, right, what, right. what I would prefer seeing is, is, is lower tax rates, um, given that we are generating these surpluses. And as long as if we did have that discussion, there's a lot of, there's a lot of efficiency enhancing reforms we could implement within the state tax code. But uh, Bill, I agree, Newsom really um, snatched victory from the jaws of defeat. There was, um, I mean, what I would call a perfect storm against the Republican candidates. Um, it turned out Larry Elder was uh, ended up being by far the leading candidate um, at the end. Um, and the Texas law regarding abortion, I think, was a huge negative 
that hit against Republican candidates who are unwilling to come out and say that they support Roe v. Wade or that they would never touch Roe v. Wade. Um, none of the candidates were willing to say that. So given that, the Democrats were masterful strategists of really just hammering home with an enormous, with enormous recall election budget uh, to really make that point. Um, and they scared people. They scared all of those voters in the middle who were part of the group that was greater than 50% um, that disapproved of Newsom. Um, and so they, they, did, they made the right choice of saying, we're not going to run on our record. We're going to run against the other guy and gal. Um, and they did that masterfully, um, including painting Elder as the as the black face of white supremacy um, right, right. and as another Donald Trump. Um, so Newsom and uh, the state's Democratic uh, organization um, were just, you know, they, they couldn't have done that any better. They switched this from what looked to be a real possibility of recalling Newsom, uh, actually having Newsom being defeated, um, to one in which he he won by a landslide. I don't think anybody saw that coming, but it really just shows the power of scaring voters and pulling out the boogeyman of Donald Trump. And when we think about political strategy, if the Republican Party is ever going to be relevant in the near term, candidates simply have to walk away from the visage of Donald Trump. It's okay to, it's okay to have similar policy positions, but once the words Donald Trump get mentioned, um, I think you've pretty much given away, given away the, uh, given away the story. Yeah, I would agree with you. Um, it was a numbers game at the end of the day, Lee. Um, there are 5 million more registered Democrats than there are Republicans in California. And unless you can discourage a lot of those Democrats to stay home, and unless you can encourage a lot of Republicans to turn out, and in the process of all that, get a lot of people in the middle, the so-called NPPs, no partisan preference voters, to vote Republican for probably the first time, because a lot of them tend to be former Democrats, you're not going to win elections. But Let's look at the budget for a second, Lee. Uh, so you mentioned $31 billion is a surplus. Uh, is it as simple as saying that this is a combination in California, two things, which is number one, the power of the market, uh, capital gains being converted uh, through home sales and stock sales into uh, taxable money, which goes into Sacramento. But then secondly, Lee, the state and the federal government flooding the state with money as well, which then gets spent on the economy. Is that what's driving the train here? Yeah, that's what's driving the train. We've had um, just this huge boon of capital gains, and this is um, you know this is not this is not the first rodeo for the California budget to be sky high. Um, nor, nor, nor will the next budget crash will be the first rodeo to be uh, to be going through bedrock. Um, Calif California's fiscal history at the state level is a tale of enormous ups and enormous downs, just huge volatility as higher income taxpayers typically uh, realize gains on houses, property, other property stocks. Um, an interesting statistic, uh, Bill and Jonathan, 40% of personal income tax revenues, <clears throat> and um, that is by far, I think, the largest single category of revenue within the state, 40% of that comes from the top one half of 1% of taxpayers. Right. And I, did, <clears throat> I looked into that number uh, and I did, a, uh, I did a few more calculations. And what I'm finding, what I'm estimating is that 25 to 30% is coming from the top one-tenth of 1% 1 of taxpayers. <clears throat> and so when we take a look, <clears throat> excuse me, when we take a look at numbers, that top one-tenth of 1% 1 is 18,000 tax returns representing 18,000 households. So we are 18,000 households away in a state of 40 million people away from the next budget crisis. And that will certainly come just as they have come in the past. Um, and it's going to be an even bigger hit now because there's even more concentration of revenue coming from a tiny group of taxpayers. And this top 10th of 1% is paying over a million dollars. They're paying right. over a million dollars in state tax revenue per year, about 1.2 something million dollars per year. Um, and those people <laughs> are those that can consider and many are considering and some have already left um, the state. 
and establishing residency in places um, such as Florida or Texas with no state income tax. Um, I wrote a recent column that talked about <clears throat> why is it that every professional golfer who earns a lot of money, such as Tiger Woods, a Californian, why are they living in Florida? Well, it's not just because of all those beautiful golf courses and, uh, and the nice weather, at least a few months out of the year. It's because there are no state income taxes. Um, so when we think about the, um, you know, so we, we're riding high now with that $31 billion surplus, but that's not going to last forever. And when the bull market, which we have been in now for 10 years, 10 plus years, when that comes to an end, and they always do, Mm -hmm. Capital gains realizations are going to decline. The revenue from the top one-tenth of one percent and top one-half of one percent, that will decline. And suddenly Sacramento is going to be looking around and thinking, where did all the money go? <laughs> what, do, what, what do we do now? Well, we better cut back here and there and not fix the roads. And um, it wasn't, Bill, it wasn't all that long ago that California was literally issuing its own money. They were issuing IOUs because they didn't have the cash to pay vendors. Uh, and it only took major banks about three days to figure out that they weren't going to accept those IOUs. Um, so we're really one end of a bull market away from potential another fiscal crash in California. Yeah, one thing this should sparkly is a, a debate as to what constitutes the middle class in California. Uh, there was a piece in the San Francisco Chronicle the other day, and uh, it's just staggering if you looked at it. And what it what the headline said was, if you're making $300,000 in San Francisco, you're middle class. And you're middle class by San Francisco standards. And why is that? One reason, housing. And so it said, well, if you want to get a decent house in San Francisco, you're probably in for two or $3 million. And so then you do what the mortgage payment is on that. Then you get into the cost of living in San Francisco and so on and so forth. Yeah, you need about $300,000 in income. And you know, you mentioned money that went back last year with the surplus. I think Lee uh, knew some targeted people making about $75,000 as, uh, as the end for that. So that's his definition of middle class, or at least the political definition of middle class in California. I'm not saying that's working class poor, but I think that lawmakers have to kind of up the bar on what is middle class in this state. Yeah, uh, they absolutely have to. You're you're right. When you look at we look at San Francisco, Silicon Valley, um, parts of Southern California, where housing is just so over the top expensive. You know, Bill, when you mentioned um, when you mentioned San Francisco, every once in a while I'll go on Zillow and I'll take a look at the median the median uh, home in San Francisco, which right now I think is about one point one point eight million, and um, and it is uh, it is <laughs> I. I sh I was going to say it's nothing special, but if you're living in a nice home in another part of the country and you would take a look at that, you would say, God, you know, that shack, up, we, we, we would tear that down. And, uh, and, and people would be asking, hey, where's the backyard? And why is it that we have a common wall with our neighbors on both sides? Um, so you're right. You end up spending $3 million for a house that your friend's living in. Um, Living in uh, Atlanta, Georgia, would say, "Yeah, that would maybe cost four hundred or five hundred here, right. but it costs three million in San Francisco." And then you've got about thirty-five thousand a year in property taxes. Um, you probably have about a hundred or one hundred twenty thousand in uh, in mortgage payments. Uh, the, li the list goes on. Um, I once did an inflation calc, um, a cost of living adjusted income by state. So I took, I took median incomes across the 50 states. I adjusted them for their location-specific cost of living. California comes in near the bottom. Um, Mississippi, which is the lowest income state in the country, after you take it into account, the cost of living, Mississippians actually, um, according to these estimates of cost of living, Mississippians on average, are better off than the median Californian. Um, so, um, you know, and, and, you know, one other item implicit in your discussion, Bill, is that there's no place in the country that has the kind of differences between high and low earners uh, than California. You go to New Jersey and you don't see, you know, which is our most densely populated state or New York, even New York, you don't see that kind of spread between people literally earning hundreds of millions of dollars in Silicon Valley and San Francisco versus people living in the Central Valley where property values um, in some areas are still below what they were before the, before the financial crisis in 08 and 09. So yeah, when you talk about middle class uh, or middle income, uh, middle income earners, 
California is becoming a state of uh, of those uh, of those with a bounty and, and and those with a bowl that's pretty empty and and wishing upon a star that their ship comes in and that they can make it also. Yeah, one place you've seen this play out, Lee, is in Congress, where um, <clears throat> Democrats have been debating what to do about salt, the uh, state and uh, local tax uh, limits, and uh, Democrats want to. Uh, Run to increase that uh, exemption. Why? It's their constituencies: New York, New Jersey, California. Um, it puts Nancy Pelosi in kind of an odd spot, a difficult spot, because politically she needs those votes to get something passed. At the same time, she gets very blue state Democrats to um, support uh, salt. Uh, there are Democrats in red states for whom this is poisonous. Because why? You're giving money to New Jersey and California. No sympathy there. So um, our problems don't necessarily play nationally. I think is the point there. No, our problems don't play nationally. That's exactly right. And um, yeah, the Democrats are really torn about about the deductibility of salt. And um, and you know ne- <laughs> they won't ever say that. Hey, Donald Trump's tax plan is the passed back in um, uh, I guess it was in um, in eighteen. Donald Trump's tax plan is the one that made taxes more progressive and took away a bunch of sweetheart deductions for high income earners, all those high earners in New Jersey, Connecticut, New York, California. <laughs> so I don't think Nancy's gonna be talking about that. Uh, and um, I believe her house is, has, uh, has a Zillow estimated market value of uh, right around 9 million. So she would, uh, she would be benefiting enormously from this as well. Whatever cap gets put in, Nancy and her husband will be hitting that cap. Exactly. Uh, speaking about the budget, uh, gentlemen, uh, this week it was reported that California state uh, Senate leaders uh, released uh, broad goals on how they'll spend it, uh, including settling debts uh, and retirement liabilities, as well as embarking on so-called equity measures, including expanding school budgets, improving health care affordability and addressing housing and homelessness. Uh, Bill, uh, politically, how do you think the budget process takes shape this year uh, with this $31 billion surplus uh, as opposed to previous years? Uh, I think it's great that the uh, state senators have their list. Uh, I, can, I can guarantee the state assembly members will have a list, and I can guarantee the governor will have a list. And on top of that, special interest will have a list in Sacramento. Uh, the governor drives the budget train, plain and simple. Uh, no matter what lawmakers may want to do, the governor gets the ultimate word. Why? Well, in part because he has veto, um, or he does have veto authority. He has blue line authority over measures. Um, plus, he can just not sign a budget if he doesn't care for what they sent him. So he tends to get the last word. That'll be part of the uh, the interesting plot here to see how uh, efficiently, how effectively Newsom sits down privately with lawmakers and agrees to things. There are two ways to do this. You can have a very messy public squabble over this, or you can privately sit down with lawmakers and say, okay, here's what we're going to do. Jerry Brown, uh, Gavin Newsom's predecessor as governor, was masterful at this. Time and again, he would tell the legislature privately, don't send this measure to me. Um, his uh, single-payer health care is his pet bugaboo, and he would just tell them very quietly, very privately, don't send this to me. I'm not going to sign it. And so let's avoid a problem here. And so they'd agree with that. So that's the first step here. I think it's going to be um, not so much what the lawmakers want to do, but what the governor wants to do. And then secondly, if the governors go to the mattress. Uh, the one thing I'll point out uh, here just to rain on this parade, there are some very serious and systemic problems with California and its budget. Uh, the, the main one being its uh, pension obligations. And that's going to be the, the white whale that's not going to get addressed here. Uh, there will be some talk, as you mentioned, about going after certain obligations and uh, tightening our you know, fiscal strings and so forth, but they will not go after pensions. Uh, plain and simple, that's just as a rock they don't want to overturn. Yeah, pensions is is the classic kick the can down the road yeah. at the state level, just as Medicare um, and Social Security, the classic kick the can down the road at the at the federal level. Um, it strikes me that being a politician today is just too good of a job. No, no politician wants to take those issues on politically because obviously they're going to be very challenging and could be very damaging to them. Um, but somewhere I, I, somewhere, I think there's someone who would be a really good public servant who's willing to do it, but who is willing to take a little bit of heat and say, hey, you know, for the good of the country, for the good of the state, we have to start talking about, uh, to talk about these issues. And if it gets me kicked out of office, then, you know, so be it. There are politicians back in the day who are willing to do that. Ronald Reagan, whether people, uh, depending on, you know, irrespective of how people remember him, 
uh, was willing to shoulder that both with Social Security and mm-hmm. also with bringing inflation down. He was willing to take the political hit. And he said, hey, you know, this is the only responsible thing we, we can do or should do. And those types of ideas seem lost today in, 20, in 2021. And Bill, you know, when it comes to the California state budget, how, uh, housing and homelessness um, really, really stand out. And Newsom's main agenda when he ran against John Cox in 2018 and, and how he should be judged um, next year, um, less than a year from now, it was his idea about a Marshall Plan for housing. Right. And in his first year, in his first year as governor, 2019, before COVID, before all the disruptions that took place in the economy, um, housing was among, uh, new housing was among the lowest, the lowest ever within California. Um, the number of housing starts that were enacted in 2019 were about 85% below Newsom's goal when he talked about this Marshall Plan for housing and all the great things we're going to do. And there's a big distinction um, between trying to create more affordable housing versus housing the homeless in the following sense. You look at a place like San Francisco, um, which just has problem after problem after problem, despite spending $15,000 per San Franciscan per year, by far the biggest the biggest city slash county budget um, in the country, 40% higher than New York. San Francisco is just mired in problem after problem. The biggest being homelessness. Um, and there's this issue about building permanent housing in San Francisco for the homeless, as opposed to temporary housing, lets people get back on their feet. Well, this is just going to be a disaster from the standpoint of Who doesn't want to live uh, in principle in the beautiful city of San Francisco, or at least the beautiful city it was at one time? Um, The idea of thinking that, hey, anybody who wants to live in San Francisco should be able to and deserves to simply is just as far away in the galaxy as you can get from fiscal responsibility and economic reality. We can't house everyone permanently in San Francisco who wants to live there. housing solutions are going to have to be in other parts of the country, away from San Francisco, away from Palo Alto, San Mateo, away from West Los Angeles. Um, So I suspect we're going to spend an enormous amount of money on housing and really not get very much for it at the end of the day. Yeah. So Lee, I want to close out on the pension thing. Uh, Our colleague, Josh Rao uh, here at the Hoover Institution, he and some uh, other uh, folks at Stanford have looked at California's pension debt and the uh, and this is kind of a bouncing ball, mind you, but the number they came up with uh, as a best case scenario for California's uh, uh, long term uh, bills, three hundred and fifty two point five billion dollars, Lee, three hundred fifty two point five billion. That translates to about twenty seven thousand dollars a household. A worst case scenario for California, Lee, is about a trillion dollars or about sixty one thousand dollars. Uh, excuse me, excuse me, $81,000 per household. So uh, what we're going to do with this, I don't know. But, but here's the thought, and we'll talk about more of this in our January podcast. The governor will have a big speech coming up, his state of the state. And here's the question, Lee. Um, how much is he going to embrace COVID? And by that, I mean, this is a problem Democrats uh, have to deal with nationally as well. Uh, embracing COVID and talking about unusual circumstances because of COVID and the pandemic allows you to open the door to do unusual things, extraordinary things. Uh, In Washington, it means spending trillions of dollars. Here in California, uh, where we are in a state of emergency, which I think Newsom has extended, what, three times now, Lee? I think we have a state of emergency through March, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, Last year, for example, or no, excuse me, in 2020, he uh, used the state of emergency to change voting rules in California, giving everyone a ballot, uh, which is part of what saved him in the recall election. Every Democrat got a ballot, but you just say because of COVID, you can do these things. So the question is going to be, Lee, is he going to stand up? It goes back to the housing question and kind of business as usual. Is he going to stand up before the legislature and say that basically we're moving along here? We have a new variant to deal with, Omicron, but what we know about Omicron is it is very catchy, but it's not a killer. So we just have to deal with the pandemic the way we would a bad flu. And we now have to return to our regularly scheduled programming. And oh, by the way, let's go back to housing. Or Lee, does he use the pandemic to again talk about extraordinary things and maybe getting into housing and other things, trot out executive orders and say unusual times call for unusual circumstances? 
Bill, if I was a bet man, I'd bet on number two. Yes. Uh, <laughs> King Gavin continues to keep his uh, right. his his court. Um, I don't see uh, now. I think there's a lot of politicians we have in this state before. I think would be doing the former mm-hmm. and saying, you know what, we're grabbing, you know, we're grabbing ourselves back into normal life. And um, and Bill, you know, uh, California is one of the high, uh, is now once 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 the state government turned vaccination over to uh, to Blue Shield after the state bungled vaccination so badly when those doses first came into California, and so many of those some so many of those doses ended up spoiling. Uh, California is one of the highest vaccinated states. Um, you know, we're not a hot spot. Obviously, that can change, um, but COVID is here. The newest variant appears to be less um, less severe, although that could potentially change. So I'm banking on Newsom saying we are not out of the woods, but hey, thank me for managing the ship and getting it steered back into the port and um, and you know keeping us alive and and getting getting kids back into schools. I think he's going to take a victory lap about a lot of stuff that he doesn't really, it wasn't really responsible for, uh, or, or at least partially not responsible for. Um, and I think we're going to continue to see King Gavin and, um, and it's scary because, uh, when you think deeply about these issues, giving so much executive power to a single person who effectively is really not accountable, um, to the point where, legislators in his own party begin talking about the inappropriateness of this and becoming very upset with it. I think he's just going to ride. I think he's just going to ride uh, the emergency orders as long as he can. So you used an interesting phrase, Lee, you used the term victory lap. And uh, that's kind of a question of a strategy for 2022. It's an election year. He's up for re-election. Lawmakers across California are up for re-election. And there'll be a question of how aggressively he pushes in terms of 2022. Part of me thinks he'll be very aggressive because why? He is politically, Lee, probably at the high watermark of his career right now. And why do I say that? He just came off the recall. He survived the recall. Uh, he is pretty much a cinch for re-election. Uh, who knows what nationally he may do. He may run for Diane Feinstein's seat in 2024. It doesn't get any better than it does right now because his, although I will point out that if you talk to some of the people around him privately, his poll numbers are starting to sag already. And why? Because he's no longer running against Larry Elder or Donald Trump. He's now kind of running against Gavin Newsom again. And so he kind of suffers in that. So the question is going to be in 2022, Lee, you know, is Newsom going to use this as just one extended, you know, together we survived the pandemic, give me four more years, or is he going to try to do something big? Uh, But the history of this guy, and we should probably segue into crime after this because that ties into priorities for 2022. There is an MO with this governor. The MO is what? You talk about some big, enormous idea, uh, just some sort of game changer for California. You appoint a task force to deal with it. And then the game changer just kind of fizzled away as a task force kind of does what task forces do, which usually produce mediocre work and move on to some other big idea. Yeah, Gavin, um, I mean, Gavin right now is just, he's wishing he had a magic wand and 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 if he could move that November 22 election up yep. to March to March 22, he would do so in a second. I mean, he is he is riding high and Gavin looks best um, when he's talking and not really doing. Right. <laughs> um, and, and he talked a lot this past fall and it worked out for him. Um, so I think we're going to get a lot of talk from Gavin and I think he's just going to keep his fingers crossed that his talk will keep him popular enough. And again, Bill, you know, it's just, yeah, I don't know who the Republicans will put up. I don't know if Elder's going to run again, uh, or Cox will make another run. I, I would suspect not given that he's been there twice or the Faulkner I'll try, or there'll be somebody else, uh, Kevin Kiley, um, who I think is a terrific state legislator, but maybe it's not his time. He didn't really move the needle. Um, so, right. yeah, I think we can. Uh, I don't know what the Vegas odds would are for Newsom's reelection, but they got to be really high. And I agree. I think he's uh, he's going to be looking uh, for national office really, really soon. 
It is. So, you know, that's if I'm the governor's people and I'm huddling right now in December and looking at January and moving on to 2022, Lee, that's my first question. Who is my foil in 2022? Uh, First two years in office, Gavin Newsom had the best foil ever for a Democrat and Donald Trump. That Donald Trump loses in the 2021, Newsom doesn't have a foil and he struggles. Then along comes Larry Elder and the recall process and voila, a new foil. But now that foil has been foiled pardon the pun. And so he has to find some new nemesis to run against in 22, some boogeyman, some straw man to build an argument against. And he can either try to single out, you know, Republicans individually and collectively, or he could perhaps turn to some issue in California. And I know the one I would turn to, but I'm not sure Newsom would. And that is the issue of crime. Crime is up 30 percent in the state. Uh, violent crime is uh, is way, way up in the state, uh, including homicides. Um, I mean, it's gotten to the point some in some cities um, that people who are living there just fi- are finding it unacceptable that they simply they can't leave a car parked outside in San Francisco where parking is uh, parking is so scarce. Um, uh, a, a, um, a current Ph.D. advisee of mine, um, you know, very bright young woman from another country, she and her boyfriend were up. In uh, visiting San Francisco um, over the summertime, and uh, and left their car parked for about half an hour, um, and so you know what happened: yep. <laughs> broken into, um, uh, uh, electronic tablets were taken, and a and a PC. And of course, these are you know, within San Francisco now. There's uh, literally open air markets where drugs are purchased and where secondhand PCs are sold. And all sorts of stuff. Um, so what? What you know? What San Francisco is a perfect poster child for what's happened more broadly in California, which is just the the common sense ideas of how do you prevent crime have just flown out the window. Right. Where so much uh, is not prosecuted, and criminals understand when there's no prosecution, that is where they go, and there's little prosecution in San Francisco, and that's why there's so much crime there. But, and you're seeing this also in Los Angeles that with D.A. Gascon, who is um, you know, similar <clears throat> to D.A. Boudin in San Francisco, in being very restorative justice-minded and being very very pro. Hey, let's try to let's try to understand the terrible child this criminal had and try to help him or her out. Um, that's backfiring enormously. Yeah, so George, of course, yeah. is is facing. Um, I, I think. I think. Did he? Bill? Did he, is his? Did they have enough signatures now to recall Boudin? Uh, I don't, it's not, the election's not been called yet, but they, they turned in more than enough signatures. They haven't been they very turned in more than that. enough. But uh, you mentioned Gascon. So Gascon was formerly San Francisco DA, job also held by Kamala Harris at one point. And he is the author of Proposition 47, which passed in, in 2014. And what did Prop 47 do? Prop 47 said that if you are uh, caught in a retail theft of less than $950, uh, it will be dealt as a misdemeanor, not a felony. You won't go to prison and, and around California. You're probably going to get prosecuted. And so now, we have this kind of revolving door of justice. And we were talking before the podcast, you pointed out there's a woman in San Francisco who has been arrested 120 or was found uh, 120 incidents of where she has uh, been ripping off stores. And after 120, enough was enough. They brought her in. And of course, what did they do? They let her right back on the street. And what did she do? She went out, she stole again. But, uh, you know, what's interesting here, Lee, is that um, California oftentimes is an outlier on progressive issues. Uh, we were very early when it came to being a sanctuary state on illegal immigration. Um, you've been following the abortion situation in the Supreme Court. Um, Governor Newsom has made it very clear that if Roe v. Wade is struck down and uh, abortion is left to individual states to decide that California will become a, a sanctuary state with abortion and possibly state resources spent on bringing people to California to have abortions. It'll be a big fight over this. But on crime, we are not an outlier. And you saw this last week with uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, who uh, did an interview with the Washington Times in which she said that basically all this talk about smash and grab uh, thefts is just kind of silly and a joke. And I think the phrase she used was, it's a Jedi mind trick by conservatives to have you believe that crime is worse than it is. And the sound that came from California, she said that Lee was crickets. 
And here's why. If you go to you go to San Francisco, you go to Union Square, which is the highest end shopping area of San Francisco, Lee. Right now, it is a it is really it looks like Berlin in 1945 in terms of just a military force occupying it. Cops on every corner around that square. Why trying to deter crime? Reminds me, I was in New York City uh, several years ago at the same time they're lighting the Christmas tree in Rockefeller Center. And New York City has a very simple strategy for how to deter crime in these situations because you figure there are a lot of people clustered around one area. It's a paradise for pickpockets and who knows what else. If you try walking toward Rockefeller Center on the night they're lighting the tree, you will find cops at every street corner. Just there is a somebody in blue almost everywhere you turn. And if you think about a crime, it you know, not that I was thinking about a crime, but if you're thinking about doing something, you just have to be very conscious of the fact that if you grab somebody's wallet, you're going to probably take about three steps before somebody's grabbing you. And so that's what San Francisco is doing right now, Lee. But I would point out, this is not sustainable. Cities like San Francisco and Los Angeles and Oakland, which also has a horrible crime situation right now, they don't have the resources, they don't have the muscle, they don't have the um, the uh, shoes on the street to stop this kind of stuff. So you may be able to put a Band-Aid over holiday shopping and kind of keep theft from going down there. But there's a long-term problem for California and that if it, it still remains vogue in the smash and grab, I'm not sure how the state's going to overcome it. No, the long-term situation doesn't look good. And Bill, when you were talking about Proposition 47, which um, which treats theft of $949 or right. less as a misdemeanor, right. um, you know, the idea of, um, of restorative justice, which is really driving Chisa Boudin and, and, uh, and Gascon, um, I mean, that's fine to think about in isolation, but the reality is that organized crime is abusing the way these laws are written. I'll just give you an example. These folks are walking into Walgreens or, or Nordstrom's or you know your favorite retail out, outfit in San Francisco and walking out, oftentimes without being pursued, um, oftentimes on camera and they give a wave and a smile, um, these are not people just committing $950 or less of a misdemeanor charge. These are people who've been, who are working for a gang. Uh, and the gang sends out these individuals to bring back merchandise and so forth. And, um, and this is organized crime. This is racketeering. This is not misdemeanor, hey, Jack had a tough childhood. Let's not send him to prison for taking $900 worth of items from the local CVS. Um, so it's not the idea that these are individuals doing this. The, this, this literally is organized crime. That's what's, what's going on here. Mm -hmm. and, um, and, you know, Bill, I was taking a look at some numbers recently about the number of cops on the street. And, um, you know, New York was New York was kind of the San Francisco back in the 70s and 80s, and they made enormous progress by simply, you know, you know, biting the bullet, reallocating the budget, uh, which is moving moving on 180 degrees from defund the police, which right. which interestingly has become incredibly quiet very very quickly. Um, but putting a lot more cops on the street and engaging in neighborhood neighborhood policing. So the cops and people who live there become partners in trying to stop crime. And that was incredibly successful in New York. Um, that's what San Francisco really has to do. But New York has, I think, uh, some close to two and a half to three times more police right. per person um, as San Francisco. And San Francisco has the most profligate city budget in the country. And that's what they're going to have to do. They're going to have to stop being tolerant. They're going to have to put a lot more cops on the street. Obviously, they, they can't maintain the arm camp that's now occurring um, uh, in Union Square. But um, they're just going to have to get a lot more cops on the street and engage in neighborhood policing. That's, that seems to be the tried and true method of bringing down city crime. Well, that's a policy transformation, Lee, but there also has to be a cultural transformation, and that's welcoming policing into your community. You probably saw the story last week of the two cops that went into the restaurant in San Francisco and were told, would you please leave? You're making everybody uncomfortable. And these are two cops doing their job, just trying to get something to eat, but they weren't welcome in that touchy-feely restaurant. And so the, the city's got to do a better job on the um, Blue Lives front. But you know, here's the question. I look high and low California. Uh, Lee, and I don't see anybody who wants to be Rudy Giuliani. And I mean the old version of Rudy Giuliani, the one who became mayor of New York City. And then, and what did he do? He imposed James Q. Wilson's broken windows theory of policing that you basically put cops at the very most local level you can, and you crack down on the most basic of crimes. 
and that has an ancillary effect of deterring even more larger shocking crimes. And I think that's what a city like San Francisco has to look at. But look, I mean, the, the mindset in San Francisco, and it's been imported in Los Angeles now, is we're just not going to be punitive on crime. We're just not going to crack down on people. We're going to look the other way. And you know, so be it. But but now the city has a problem, Lee, and it's not just too difficult to live in San Francisco, but now it's a question of being safe in San Francisco. And if you're a merchant in San Francisco, why are you going to go to some place like Union Square if you're a high-end store like the Louis Vuitton store that got you know, ripped off? Uh, why are you going to open up your shop in San Francisco if there's a pretty good chance you have to board it up due to, uh, due to you know, some smash and grab? Yeah, this, this, this is becoming like the type of riots we, you know, I see every decade or every two decades in areas where retail re, re, retail business is smashed, burned, um, such as we saw, you know, such as we saw recently. Uh, but it's going to become an everyday, an everyday issue for San Franciscans. And um, on the supply side, businesses are just going to leave. And on the demand side, Crime goes where crime doesn't get punished, and there's a never-ending supply of criminals who will go to San Francisco or Los Angeles, where they know the likelihood of the likelihood of being caught, the likelihood of being prosecuted is extremely low. Um, there's just going to be no end to that. Um, it's yeah. not like dealing with ten people and trying to figure out psychologically what led you to do this. Um, it's going to be a never-ending sea of people coming yeah. in to lay to lay siege to the city. Yeah, and to close out, um, to, close out to close out on crime, Lee, uh, a sign of the times. I live not too far from the Stanford Ball, and if anybody has been to the Stanford Ball, they know that it is high-end and beyond, just as an upscale. Uh, if you look carefully at the mall right now, Lee, you'll see that there are barriers all around the mall uh, for exit points. You can basically go in and out of the mall in one or two places. And why are they doing this? Because they're looking at the prospect of smash and grab and thinking, okay, a bunch of kids are going to come and steal stuff, jump in a car and get away. We have to create as best as we can a bottleneck to keep this from happening. And so that's part of their solution right now. I see these barriers going up. So welcome to crime in California. Welcome to crime in California. Uh, gentlemen, it's ironic that the government is actually becoming uh, pretty punitive uh, when it comes to uh, issues such as housing. Uh, this week, Attorney General Rob Bonta announced uh, the first big punitive measure in his housing strike force uh, to enforce tenant protection, housing production laws, uh, a $3.5 million judgment subject to court approval uh, against corporate landlord Wedgwood Incorporated. Um, however well-meaning this might be, Lee, uh, could you discuss the economic implications uh, of such measures, if any? Sure. So California has some of the, some of the strongest, what are known as tenant protection laws in the country um, that, uh, that make it very difficult for landlords to evict, um, to give tenants a lot of leeway in terms of even just you know, paying their rent. Um, and of course, the problem here is that um, investment capital is incredibly fluid. Capital goes to where the highest return is. And the more you take away returns from capital, which include the costs and expenses involved in trying to evict people for not paying rent um, uh, and other types of lit uh, litigation matters, um, capital is going to go elsewhere. So when you think of it, you know, so there's no, uh, as, he got, as economists like to say, there's no free lunch. Um, if we are going to build uh, housing, rental housing, um, it's going to build in into that safeguards uh, to make sure the capital gets its competitive rate of return. And that's going to be, there's going to be a rental premium because the people who are building those buildings know, you know what, I'm going to have some tenants that for whatever reason, there's, you know, they're going to be problems. And it's incredibly expensive to deal with these tenants. So they build in an extra $100 a month, $200 a month, $300 a month into rent, uh, which people are happy to pay because there's a shortage um, to try to cover those unforeseen, those, those expenses that they know are going to arise. So what happens is you just get less building, higher costs, higher prices, and everyone else is, is paying an implicit tax to support the well-intentioned but incredibly inefficient laws that, uh, that exist. The best way to get down rents is just to build more. And we make it incredibly difficult to do that here in California, where, um, you know, quote, low income, unquote, housing costs over $1,000 a square foot to right. build. 
So in case you're wondering why uh, being an attorney general is a sexy job and a sexy stepping stone to higher office, this is a very good example of it. You get a nice big headline. Uh, there's a big dollar figure involved. Uh, I remind of a line in The Sopranos uh, where uh, a bunch of the uh, gangsters get arrested on the Super Bowl Sunday because they're gambling. And uh, Silvio Dante, Tony uh, Sopranos number two, goes, every Super Bowl Sunday, the DA makes some uh, popcorn headlines. And uh, this is kind of what attorney generals do in America. They go for popcorn headlines and they just sort of pick out their favorite demons to go after. And if it's not housing, it's pharmaceutical companies or gun companies or what have you, depending on your political ideology and your bugaboo or not. But uh, we'll see. Mr. Bonta, by the way, he's also up for re-election in 2022 as well. So uh, and he might have a challenge actually on the Democratic front, which is kind of rare for California statewide office. So you know, good politics for him. Good, good. Po- yeah, very good politics. And um you know, it was good politics for Zabia Becerra. Uh, he got he, he his his foil was basically Donald Trump. I can't remember how many lawsuits he filed against Donald Trump, but <laughs> that really paid off uh, well for him politically. Yes, it did. Uh, Bill, Gavin Newsom this week has come out with a, um, a new book and uh, he used his uh, campaign email to uh, do some promotions on it. Uh, is this uh, is this good politics for the governor? Well, I've been kind of wrestling with this. So the governor has a uh, he's written a children's book on dyslexia. And for him, it's personal because he grew up um, with dyslexia and struggled in school as a result. So he wants to I think to his credit, he wants to show that, look, this is a problem in society, but you can accomplish things despite being dyslexic. It's not a it's not a curse necessarily. And you can overcome it if you work hard. So good for him. Uh, here's where my uh, where my uh, delicate sensibilities were offended. I got an email, as you mentioned, from his campaign apparatus, encouraged me to buy a copy of the book. And if I bought a copy of the book, uh, I would get a signed Gavin Newsom baseball. But they wanted me to buy a copy of the book because they wanted to drive the book up the New York Times bestseller list. And for a governor who says that the book is not about him, it's about dyslexia, that's about the governor. And that's about resume enhancement and saying that he's not just the governor of California. He's a New York Times bestselling author. Uh, that's vanity, plain and simple. So I think boo on the governor for that. But uh, it's very interesting, Lee and Jonathan. Um, sometimes you have to be careful what you wish for. And you write a book about dyslexia. And it has opened up Newsom to criticism on the policy front, the policy criticism being this. There was a bill in the uh, legislature this past year, which would have established uh, dyslexia, dyslexia testing uh, for kids in kindergarten through second grade. Uh, It did not get hearings. It was dead on arrival. Uh, Dead on arrival because the California Teachers Association, the all-powerful teachers union in California, opposes it because they basically don't want to be dictated um, terms. But also, I think they're afraid that if you do that, you're going to start examining exactly how kids are taught learning and you get into a whole messy situation for for CTA. Uh, So here's a governor who uh, deals with dyslexia as a champion of, uh, of, of tackling this issue, but he would not go near that bill. And so uh, there was actually a column in the San Francisco Chronicle the other day calling me a hypocrite on this. That's a strong word, but it does expose, uh, shall we say, a double standard on this. Yeah, it does. It does. And the governor going off to, to do a book tour um, does seem to be poor timing. Uh, it does seem to be it does seem to be tone deaf. Um, and you and this is the type of book that you would think a politician would write maybe after they're out of office, uh, as opposed to when they're supposed to be making those tough decisions 24 um, seven. It reminds me, you know, as uh, as someone without an interest in New York politics, I remember just how I, you know, my initial reaction when I found out that, you know, that Cuomo wrote his book about leadership, um, you know, during the height of uh, during the height of COVID. It just seemed like uh, really really is this what is this what is this what we're doing here um and and um you know at the end of the day you would think that a really well-functioning efficient school system would be aware and would be sensitive and would be able to deal with a variety of learning issues including dyslexia uh we wouldn't have to have all these mandates in place um if we had the right trained professionals and the right teachers um and many of our teachers are extremely good, very, very committed to their jobs. Um, not all of them are, just as in any profession. And this really points to uh, the deficiencies in a school system that from a standpoint of performance, a school system that used to rank number one back in the day and now ranks about 40th 
Um, so yeah. this really boils down to governance within schools. And you know, Bill is absolutely right to point out about the very delicate issues between the governor and the teachers union. And um, that really calls into issues about uh, causing the question about leadership. Well, let me add one more element to it. There's a political element, Lee and Jonathan. Uh, if my campaign's putting out an APB saying, please buy this book, uh, and my governor is sitting on a $31 billion budget surplus, what is stopping special interest in Sacramento from buying this book in bulk and thus driving up the list? And if it does make the New York Times bestseller list, fellas, see if it has a dagger next to it. New York Times does this on its book list. It puts a dagger next to a book if that book is being bought in big bulk numbers. Because, for example... Donald Trump puts out a book and it becomes a bestseller. People are buying that thing in 10 and 20,000 installments. So let's see if the governor's book suffers the same fate. Again, I hate to be so cynical about this because there is a certain nobility to talking about dyslexia and trying to want to make this a better world. But again, I just kind of worry about this bad set of circumstances when got a lot of money to spend. A lot of people in Sacramento want that money and the governor wants people to buy his book. You might remember, Lee, um, Speaker Jim Wright back in the House of Representatives back in the 1980s, he got into trouble for this and ended up costing him his job. Newt Gingrich made an issue of this. Wright wrote a really kind of crappy book and special interest around Washington bought it in bulk. Why? They want to do business with the speaker. And so that's how they got on the speaker's good side. I'm not predicting this. not like there's a prophecy for California, but I just worry when you do a book like this, you know, for a good cause, it's pretty easy for people to kind of take it and corrupt it if they want to. So just yeah, be, yeah, be careful, absolutely. Governor Newsom. That's all I'm saying. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I doubt he will be careful. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> I think I think it just isn't in it's just not in his persona. Um, and it, yeah, the timing, the timing. The timing for the book doesn't seem right. The timing for implementing appropriate and effective teaching programs within schools is way, way overdue. Um, and at some level, his book and what we do in schools are really two very, very different things. Yeah. I wish he was. I wish he would spend more time on the former than the latter. Well, gentlemen, since this is our last uh, broadcast for uh, our California broadcast for 2021, I want to wish you both a happy new year. This has been a very interesting and timely analysis. And uh, thank you for your time. Thank you, Jonathan. Thank you, Lee. I hope you guys have a safe holiday and everybody out there travel safely, stay healthy, and uh, we look forward to uh, engaging with you in 2022. Happy holidays, gentlemen. Happy holidays uh, to the folks listening. I hope everybody stays well and healthy and uh, look forward to a great 22 and look forward to our next podcast. You've been listening to Matters of Policy and Politics, the Hoover Institution podcast devoted to governance and balance of power here in America and around the free world. Please don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast wherever you might hear it. And if you don't mind, please spread the word, get your friends to have a listen. The Hoover Institution has Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter feeds. Our Twitter handle, Twitter handle is at Hoover Inst. That's at Hoover I-N-S-T. Bill Whalen is on Twitter. His handle is at Bill Whalen C-A. And Leo Hanian is also on Twitter. His handle is at Lee underscore Hanian. Please visit the Hoover website at hoover.org and sign up for the Hoover Daily Report where you can access the latest scholarship and analysis from our fellows. Also check out California on Your Mind where Bill Whalen and Leo Hanian write every week. Again, this is Jonathan Mavertis sitting in Bill Whalen's chair this week. He'll be back for another episode of Matters of Policy and Politics. Thank you for listening. This podcast is a production of the Hoover Institution, where we advance ideas that define a free society and improve the human condition. For more information about our work or to listen to more of our podcasts or watch our videos, please visit hoover.org.